the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Carol Zerniel, nationally known gerontologist, chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging. Carol serves as executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation and a vice president for community relations for WellMed Medical Management. That takes five minutes of every show. It's we're a lot of figure, responsibility. We're going to have to figure out a way to, to make an acronym out of all of those titles. She knows aging. <laughs> That's right. Aging, aging are us. I'm aging. Exactly. Well, we're going to have a great guest, speaking of aging, who uh, has written a book on activities that you can do with someone who has Alzheimer's or another form of dementia, Judith Levy, an occupational therapist, will be joining us in just a few minutes. Right. And, and Judith really has a, a great take on working with someone with Alzheimer's, we don't talk about how do you pass the time of the day? We talk a lot about uh, the craziness, but when you want to do something that's supportive and engaging with that person with Alzheimer's, you know, Judith is a wealth of information. Better than plugging them in front of a TV. Yes, much better. So uh, when we got our, our newborns, we have three little kids, as you and everyone else in the universe knows by now. Uh, our household is filled now with toddlers. My wife, Gina, has a hand sanitizer dispenser in almost every room in the house. And probably one in her pocket. Yes, in her purse. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, somewhere, yeah, somewhere it's handy. Yeah, and the question all of us are asking, well... Is it too much? It, well, do they work? And, you know, if you're concerned, like some people, about uh, creating germs that are super bugs Tougher and they can't be killed at all you know are we just you know raising the bar where even the hand sanitizers aren't going to work so somebody asked this question and the cdc the centers for disease control have the answer to cool. this so if you're using a hand sanitizer that's alcohol based they're like 60 to 95 percent alcohol based um they don't increase the chances of producing super bacteria later on because oh, they're just good. alcohol so that's not going to do anything but they also are not as effective as soap and water the cdc says so if if you're trying to fight norovirus, which is that awful virus they get on cruise ships that, you know, mm. causes stomach flu, um, that is not necessarily going to get killed by the hand sanitizers. Which they have all over cruise ships, too. Yeah, which they have. So hand washing, still number one defense. Alcohol-based, those are the kind of hand sanitizers you want to use. The ones that aren't alcohol-based are not as good. CD says, CDC says they don't work as quickly, um, and they're less effective. And one of them, which I'm not sure I can even pronounce this, triclosan, T-R-I-C-L-O-S-A-N, I'm not a scientist. Um, actually, that one may help create superbugs. That one may create oh. uh, resistant bacteria. And so we don't want to do that. So r- wash your hands really well or use an alcohol-based hand sanitizer. And uh, Dr. Robin Eikoff, with whom we do WellMed Radio Long has said hand washing, hand washing, hand, hand washing. washing. Yeah, and and my mother, who's a retired RN, always said you should be able you scrub your hands and long enough to sing Happy Birthday, a quick version of Happy Birthday while you're washing your hands. If that's how long you have to scrub to really get all of the germs off. So if you were going to be in the operating room or you were going to be a nurse, that's how long you would wash your hands. And my dentist says sing Happy Birthday while you're brushing your teeth. That's how long you should brush your See? teeth. See, Happy Birthday. What a key song. Who knew that it was such a pivotal song? Nobody knew. <laughs> Nobody knew that. So hand sanitizers. Now, next topic. And you really have dug into illnesses here. That's right. New York Times helps with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank God for the New York Times. Protection 
without a vaccine. Okay. There's a new trend. Yeah, this is really cool. This is the in the cool science thing. And, I, and I'm I not cool really science. a science geek, but this is cool. Bill Nye, the science guy. Yeah, yeah. So what do you do? Um, like this was started with people that have HIV that, you know, they're trying to develop a vaccine against HIV. And they haven't been able to do that. But the scientists at Scripps Research Institute have developed an artificial antibody. Artificial. Oh. So an artificial antibody that once in the blood grabs hold of the virus and inactivates it. And mentally, I picture this little, you know, plastic <laughs> little yeah. antibody getting in the blood and, you know, squeezing the, the, the little bad virus from, uh, out. From toy soldiers. So this isn't... This is actually gene therapy. It's not vaccinations at all. Mm -hmm. It works like a vaccination, but it's really, it's altering the person's DNA to produce these artificial antibodies, which sounds kind of scary, but it's been working in monkeys. It's been working in mice, not that people are mice. And researchers aren't just testing it on HIV, but they're also looking at other illnesses that don't have a vaccine Ebola, malaria, uh, hepatitis. So this could revolutionize vaccinations for those of us who do believe that vaccinations are a good thing yes. and they are a good thing uh, in terms of vaccinating your children and vaccinating against disease. So um, the the HIV vaccine has been 80 percent effective for the monkeys uh, and it's starting to work on the mice and human trials are already in the works. Really? Which is also very interesting. So, you know, gene therapy is also not as, um, you know, if you were a bioethicist, you would not be as concerned with gene therapy. Gene therapy has been around for 30 mm -hmm. years, helping work with people that have illnesses like cystic fibrosis, you know, that are, are genetic and transferred uh, through your genes. And this just is... Uh, a good step forward, and it, it's probably one of the most promising things. We were just talking about superbugs. Right. So, you know, this same kind of a premise might work when we get eventually work on um, different viruses that have become resistance to antibiotics. We're going to need something else, and this is one of the more promising practices. C. diff would be one of those. By the way, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. On 9.30 a.m., The Answer, I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. And in just a moment, we are going to segue from what we're doing now into Judith Levy talking as an occupational therapist, which she is, about activities for an Alzheimer's or dementia patient, ways in which you can make that interaction more productive, which leads me to the next question for Carol Zernio. Five ways to make caregiving tasks easier. One might be read Judith's book. One one way could be read Judith's book, and I think you'll you'll find there's some similarities here. This is from the Family Caregiver Alliance, and they're just talking about some really easy techniques that you can use to make your day go a little better. And one of those is that when you're working with the care recipient, the person you're taking care of, is you want to approach them from the front and get eye contact. Um, there's nothing worse than coming, you're coming up from the side or boo. you're talking from the door, boo, and they jump or they drop something. Everybody's <laughs> yeah. frightened. Uh, and so that eye contact will, will help them be calm. They'll see you're coming. They'll be looking at you. And whatever it is you're about to do is going to go a lot smoother if you have not discombobulated them from the very beginning. So try that visual connection. That visual thing. Um, get your loved one, the person you're taking care of to help, even if they're frail, um, they can help out so you can say we're getting ready to leave can you stand up and at least maybe maybe they can't stand up on their own but they can get some of their weight up off the chair which you can use that forward momentum to get in the rest of the way mm -hmm. well that saves you wear and tear sure if you're not doing all of the pushing from it you know a deadlift is way different than pushing forward on somebody that's got forward momentum been a lot of research on back injuries to nurses in hospitals which, yeah, incredibly, incredibly. Da incredibly dangerous. And yes. you don't want to be the person that's the caregiver with a back injury. Um, and allow the person to finish what they're doing. And, uh, I mean, how many of us as parents are guilty of this and as caregivers are guilty of this? Because, you know, we're on a schedule. We've got someplace to be. Just stop and do what I'm telling you to do. You know, we snap the kids up and we snap our loved one up and it's and they don't get to finish. Well, is it really that urgent that we be on time? I know I'm one of those that, you know, I 
I'm always late. Why do I feel like I have to be on time? Because I'm always late. Anyway, uh, so allow them to finish what they're doing, especially if they um, have dementia. You're just going to rushing them. It's going to make them anxious. It's going to make them all, again, the discombobulated thing. Uh, so we don't want to do that. And it'll stress you out, too. And it does stress you out. And you get all, uh, you know, you, you just don't need that to go get in the car or try to do something. Uh, next recommendation from the Family Caregiver Alliance is use major bone and muscle groups. So this means if you're having to physically help someone, you don't want to be pulling on their appendages. And I do see this all the time. How many times do you see people trying to get somebody up off the chair and they're pulling their arm? Okay, an arm is not a major muscle group. <laughs> it's an appendage. And you can dislocate and an you elbow can, yeah, and you, you know, you can pull, yeah, pull it out. You can injure right. them. It's really easy to injure somebody. So you want to get, we're talking the big, heavy stuff that you can see, you know, thighs, backside, shoulders, core body. So, you know, use the body to advantage. Again, this is helping work with you as opposed to Mm -hmm. tugging on something that's not going to really get you anywhere. And you could hurt yourself or them. Are there training programs for that? You know, there are. If you go on YouTube or if you go to mmlearn.org, there's some wonderful videos that caregivers can watch. How to transfer, how to lift that can give you some ideas. Um, And the last one, and we'll hear, I think Judith talks about this as well in her book, is allow for their reality. If you're working with somebody with dementia and they think that you're the next door neighbor and you're really the daughter, is it okay? So today you're the next door neighbor. What's the difference? Yeah, it it really does. It's okay to be the next door neighbor. Well, what about playing the game? Hey, Mama, do you know who I am? Who am I? Who am I? Yeah, we don't want to play those kind of games. Uh, the the <laughs> the guessing game with everybody loses is probably not it. So five ways to make caregiving tasks easier. Got about a minute before we have to uh, jump to Judith Levy. Uh, they're trying to identify Parkinson's disease much earlier on. Well, this was uh, also from the New York Times. Fascinating. And the bottom line on this is the sooner you get somebody into some sort of a drug therapy that helps keep their dopamine levels up in the brain, which helps to prevent that jerky movement stiffness that people with Parkinson's get, the better. And they have found that one of the best pre-diagnostic symptoms to look for, somebody that's going to get Parkinson's maybe five years later, is if somebody is acting out their dreams. Somebody who is kicking and 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 doesn't have that thing. You know, when, you, when you're dreaming, you're, you're running, you're jumping, but you're not really. It's only in your dream. But when people do that in real life while they're sleeping... That can be something you need to look at. It can be a precursor to Parkinson's. My dog does that sometimes. Okay, so um, I don't think it applies to canine. Oh, that's a good thing. All right, we're going to press on. Judith Levy joins us in just a moment, an occupational therapist, talking about ways to uh, uh, interact with mom or dad or whomever may have Alzheimer's or dementia. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. All you have to do is look around and you see that folks are getting older. And when that happens, Dr. Robin Eikoff, what do they do for medical care? Well, you know, I'm glad you asked because at WellMed, we have a whole cadre of doctors who are specialized in just taking care of seniors. Is there a difference treating somebody who's 75, 80, 85 versus 20, 30, 40? Well, it's a little more challenging because obviously they got a lot of more use on their body. But the concepts are the same. Eat right, exercise, and practice preventative medicine. And at WellMed, we do all of those things, and we help you achieve that. And I understand you spend more time with your patients than a lot of other Medicare clinics. We do, and it's not time spent in the waiting room. It's time spent with the providers, it's time spent with the nurses, and it's time spent with the staff. You want to become a WellMed patient? It's easy. Just call 615-WELL, 210-615-WELL to look for and hook up with a WellMed doc. Well, thank you so much for sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host Carol Zerniel and I have been promising a great conversation talking with uh, Judith Levy about her book and her work as an occupational therapist activities to do with your parent who has Alzheimer's dementia. And I think it's important to point out it doesn't really matter whether it's your parent or not. It's things you can do if you're a caregiver, and it turns out it's not your parent, right, Carol? That's right. A- activities, you know, any, anybody that has Alzheimer's, if you're working with them, you're going to benefit from the information in this book. And that strikes pretty close to home for you. It does. It does. Uh, Judith was telling us before the show that she was caring for her mom, and um, my mom also has Alzheimer's. Right. You've talked about her on the show. 
and uh, activities are important for both her and for the caregiver. So, Judith, thank you for joining us on Caregiver SOS on Air. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, one of the things you had mentioned uh, is the book is a result of not only you serving as a caregiver for your mom, but uh, more than 20, 30, 40 years of work as an occupational therapist. First of all, for those who don't know, what is an occupational therapist? Oh, boy, that's such a hard thing. We don't find jobs for people. What we do is we help make doing possible. And it's eating, dressing, hygiene, toileting. It's the activities of daily living that allows somebody to be independent um, on the skills that they need to be doing on a daily basis. But I'll bet that mistake is made often about, well, I need a job so the occupational <laughs> therapist will train me for one. That's right. No, I don't find jobs, but I will help somebody be independent following an illness. How did you get into that field? <laughs> My sister's a speech therapist, and she knows I like to do activities and crafts, and she said, gee, you might like to be an occupational therapist. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and there you went. And I became one. And you've enjoyed so, it, obviously. I love it. I love it. It's exceptionally gratifying, and it's been able to adapt to me at each level of my life, from full-time to part-time to consulting to teaching. It's wonderful. Now it's, you, it's a great profession. It's needed, and it's, it's satisfying. So you work with all age groups as an occupational therapist? Uh, yes. So I've done pediatric, where I did developmental evaluations for kids that were born with birth defects. I did camp programs for kids with uh, learning disabilities who wanted to go to summer camp and needed programming. I did adult rehab for people who have had strokes, and I really liked working with people that had strokes. It, it, it was wonderful. Why? So, And then I've taught. And then I got into being the daughter of a parent who had dementia, and I changed a little bit for that, too. So it's kind of been across the board. It's been fun, gratifying, and uh it worked out well for me. What was it I, about? I recommend it as a field for somebody. What was it about stroke patients that uh, really got you interested? Oh boy, I my goal is to have somebody be independent, and there's something about dealing with someone that's had a stroke that you can just do incredible rehab. And I'm in New Jersey. You're in Texas. I know you have good rehab facilities where you are, and it's it's really gratifying. It's not a depressing field, and as somebody makes an accomplishment and regain some control. It's just a wonderful feeling. And a stroke, it's very measurable. You know, you can work on dressing. You can work on um, getting in and out of bed, going back to work, talking about work, and adapting the environment so someone can be independent. It's, it's uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Well, and there's, you know, a lot of people that I work with or, or families that we've worked with are are so devastated by a stroke, and we often tell them, you know, there's so much progress that can be made. A stroke is, is not like Alzheimer's where you lose an ability and it stays gone forever. Um, right. You know, with a stroke, people actually come back. They do come back. And they may not come back to the person that they were before, but they still can be independent. And you want to maximize the level of independence for the level that they get to. And each each step is gratifying to the individual and gratifying to the therapist. So it's a good place to be. Right. So she could be a, she, now you can be a career counselor for occupational yeah. therapists. <laughs> exactly. you're, ready, you're ready for that next job. <laughs> That'll be my next book. So talk to us about activities for those who have Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia and why they turn out to be so gratifying and helpful both for the patient, the care recipient, as well as for the caregiver. Uh, um, it was very easy to deal with a patient at work and then come home because I could leave it at, at work. So I could be really objective. When it got to be my mother who had dementia, you, you can't leave it at work, and you come home, and it's with you all the time. So my problem was with an aide who was, we had wonderful aides for my mother. I was really my mother's care manager. But they are taught the ADLs, the eating, the dressing, the hygiene, the toileting, and then they're left with an individual, and what do you do with them all day? And with dementia patients who don't necessarily know the concept of time anymore, all day can be all day. And you need the, the need that I had as a therapist was to have my mother do something purposeful to have a feeling of success about what she was doing. 
the need that I had for the aid was to organize the aid so that they had an idea what to do rather than to plot my mother in front of a television set. And that was my background behind writing the book. I had a need as a daughter and I had a need as a therapist. And it took me a year, a little bit longer than a year to write it, eight months to get it published, and now it's out there. Well, that's very exciting. So if someone were to pick up the book, what would they see? The book describes activities that you can do with somebody. And so I'll give you an example, um, getting dressed. So what it does is it'll help you organize that you're going to help somebody make a decision between two choices. We're going to discuss the weather. Let's look outside. What do you see? Is it nice out? Is it cold out? Is it raining out? What kind of clothing do we need? So that what's happening is you're starting to work with someone to make a decision based on something that they're seeing. So you're communicating with the individual. And then you have a choice. Do you want to wear the red sweater or the white sweater? So that you're not going to say, let's pick from your closet where a choice might be overwhelming. You're going to start to limit the choices. So the book kind of gives a framework on how to set up an activity. And then with each activity is an assessment form. And the assessment form says, um, where were you? What time of day did you do it? Um, what worked? What didn't work? Did you situate yourself at the table? Did you do it? You know, so that there's an assessment for each activity that appears in the book and that you can write down your own reactions of what worked best for you and your client or your parent. And if it didn't work, it gave you a framework on how to change it. And the focus being having caregiver A be able to communicate to caregiver B. Well, I love that you have this quality improvement process built into <laughs> each of the activities. That's the therapist. <laughs> exactly. Well, what worked best? Uh, the daughter was up at 4 o'clock in the morning pounding on the keys <laughs> to write an activity. What worked best with your mother? Um, my mother wanted to appease me. So through it all, she wanted to make me happy. I wanted to make her be involved and to interact with me interact, not interact, interact with me, mm -hmm. and she wanted to do whatever it was to, to have a relationship with me, and as her skills became less and less, it became more and more um, hugging, and she was thrilled to hug, and she was thrilled to smile, and we would have great conversations in whatever way they meandered, she was happy. So the, the thing about the activity is that you can start out doing one thing and end up doing something completely different, and that's fine. Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. We're talking with Judith Levy about working with Alzheimer's patients. She's an occupational therapist, but has, uh, through her own experience with her mom and with others, uh, put together a book that really becomes a handbook of activities that you can engage in uh, with a care recipient, whether it's your mom or dad or not. Uh, and provide for more productive relationships and interactions. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here, and I bet you have another question for Judith. Well, I was just wanting to comment on, uh, on the book that you've got more than 50 activities listed in the book. So this isn't just a handful of ideas. This is a lot of ideas. It is. It is. And part of it is, is that as a therapist, I got bored. And part of the problem with AIDS is that doing the same thing every day, they get bored and they get burned out. And the last thing you want is an aid that's going to be burned out because they're not going to want to be there and they're not going to be in the best position to help your loved one. So I wanted to have them get an idea on how you brainstorm about an activity. So if you want to take a deck of cards, as an example, um, instead of just playing gin, which my mother could play initially and then as, as her illness progressed, she knew that she could play it, but she didn't know what it was called. And then she couldn't play it, so we went to the game of war. And then she couldn't play it, so we went to making letters of the alphabet out of cards. And then she couldn't do that, so we went to look for the number four. Or we went to look for the color red versus black. Or we went to turn the pictures over. Or we went to sort them, two different decks of cards by color. So the, the idea of an activity and how you change it gives a little bit of variety for the aid as well as the individual so that it's something different all the time and that you can say, oh, this didn't work. How can I change it? What works best? 
and it may only work best Monday and Tuesday, and it may not work on Wednesday and Thursday because it's the nature of the illness. But the book kind of gives a framework on how to look at activity and how to change it up and then communicate it to the next person so that it's consistent for your parent, which offers a framework, and then hopefully your parent will be happy and your caregiver won't be bored. Are there activities, and and you you mentioned you actually end up tracking the progression of the disease as the skill level and mental acuity required becomes less and less able on the part of the care recipient. So uh, you have activities in there that will start out, as you mentioned, with cards uh, and then move down to less and less complex? Well, yes, but the problem with Alzheimer's is it doesn't necessarily go from A to B to C. It can go from A to Z and back to B again. And there's there's no logic to the disease, and there's there's no real consistency. So we were fortunate with my mom that she didn't end up bedridden, and she ended up happy and dancing and going to the beauty parlor and getting manicures each week, all the way up to the week before she died. And she was just a blessed woman because she was still engaged at the level that she was able to be engaged up until the time that she mm. died. Well, and it, but it sounds like you had a lot to do with that. I mean, if she had been left watching the TV for a number of years, 10 years, uh, was, that would have been a different it would have been a different story. Mm-hmm. So, basically, I wanted to help caregivers provide for their client or the child to provide for their loved one. All right, stick with us. You're going to go into that cone of silence, a la Maxwell Smart, here in just a minute. All right, 99, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air at 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Dancing along here on Caregiver SOS On Air, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, Roland Ruiz on the controls. And we're talking with Judith Levy, whose book, as an occupational therapist, has a prescription, some 50-plus activities that you can engage in with a care recipient. Could be your mom, could be your dad, could be someone else. Activities that uh, will let them be challenged, and you as well. Well, and in this book, um, Judith, there are, it's not just activities. You have other section in the book about resources, uh, preventing burnout, medical terms, uh, and room-by-room safety suggestions. So what else? Yeah, that, there's a lot in the book. Tell I us a little bit so. about those things. Well, um, the first thing is that when somebody says to you that your parent or your whomever has dementia, you kind of like, lose it. I I couldn't attend anymore. It's like you, you think that you hear, but you don't necessarily really hear. And one of the major things that I do feel, and I said it to my patients while I was working, when you go to the doctor's office, say to the doctor that you would like to tape the visit, because the odds are you're going to go home later and you're going to forget everything that the doctor said. So if you have it taped or you take copious notes or bring somebody with you that's more objective than you, have them write down what's going on and what the answers are so that you can remember to tell your loved ones later when they start to ask you questions exactly what the doctor did say. So that's part of my framework, too, is how to get yourself ready to go to the doctor, what information you should have. Um, the OT and me wants safety in the house and to prevent falling, so there's some specifics on um, lighting and um how to set up your house so that you're not tripping over loose rugs or or articles that might be left on the floor, scatter rugs, the like. Um, how to rearrange some shelves so that things that are heavy aren't on the top but are closer to the level where you're using them so that you're not reaching for something that might make you lose your balance. And even something the old-fashioned, they have a clapper. When you would clap your hands and the light would go on, something like that is a wonderful thing. So I have some checklists in the book on room-by-room safety 
and I have also definitions in there of medical terminology. Sometimes the doctors will use a term and you have no idea what it is and you don't want to take the time to ask the question or you don't even know to ask the question. So some of the things that you might hear are listed in there. Alzheimer resources are in there. Um, and then- a home safety checklist is in there. Things to be concerned with so that hopefully you can live a long life and that you're parent will be in a safe environment. And what do you suggest to prevent caregiver burnout? Oh, variety. Um, I think that the more you have variety and that you're, you're interacting with the caregiver so that they're not the only person left being the person taking care of someone 24 hours or 36 hours a day, um, you're going to prevent burnout. One of the things uh, that we were fortunate that my mother was able to afford in aid and we made arrangements for a driver to take her to the beauty parlor and to have a manicure and to have time when she got out and that also the caregiver got out. And we would take the group of them out for lunch and we would go to the mall and we would go shopping. So as long as we could keep them busy and happy and thriving, we didn't have an issue of burnout. Uh, all too often you might see one person being stuck with an overwhelming responsibility for somebody forever. And dementia lasts a long time, and that's when you're getting burnout. When you're not helping somebody else to continue living, only caring, it's kind of a difficult time to not prevent burnout. It's one of those good news, bad news stories. They, you know, The bad news is they have dementia, and the bad news is, boy, they're going to live a long time. They do live a long time, and they, most people are remarkably healthy. So the, it, it's just the mind that isn't working. The mind, uh, Elvis has left the building. The, the <laughs> mind is not functioning like it was before. And what's so sad about it, and I refer to it as an onion disease, is that you're peeling off layer by layer of that individual. You're getting to the core of them, and when you talk about someone like Tipa Snow, who's phenomenal, she talks about having the pearl. She talks in terms of gems and that the pearl is the nub of the individual. When you have an onion and you get down to the center core of the onion, it's like you've lost all the extraneous stuff that makes somebody's personality shine, and it just gets to be more and more less. (laughs) I don't know how else to describe it. There was it. a piece in, uh, piece in our local paper, Santone Express News, the other day. Uh, a nursing home, uh, dementia memory home, where uh, there was a fellow there who had been a big-time uh, music writer, composer, performer, who performed for the residents. Uh, he had Alzheimer's, had no real memory, but he could play the old songs, and, and he did every day. Uh, in their entertainment room, which provided a lot of fun for everybody. That part stays with us. Music. Why? I I don't know, but it transcends the entire spectrum of someone with dementia. Somebody from the very beginning to the very vestige of what they have. And one of the presents that we gave my mother for her birthday was an AM-FM CD radio. And the aide loved it because she would dance. And my mother would dance with her. But the records, the CDs that we got were all music from the 1930s and 1940s. So that the music was appropriate to when she was younger. Because it's almost like if somebody who has dementia, that it's a high-rise building. And our elementary school starts at the bottom. And then you go to middle school. And then you go to high school. And then you go to college. And then you go on to whatever it is. Dementia is taking away the recent. And it's leaving you with the past. So music, it it shouldn't necessarily be music from 2015. It should be music from that individual's youth. On Sirius uh, Satellite Radio, they have a uh, 30s, 40s channel. Absolutely. Sirius Channel 3. Yes, I say those are the ones I can remember. I hit it by accident. Yeah, 40s on 4 and 50s (laughs) on 5. Well, and we did. Whenever I got my mother in the car, I'd turn to 40s radio, and she would just sing. It was wonderful. Right. There's a lot um, recently on music. I know that that there's somebody else that was on uh, a radio program talking about um, personalizing 
you know, music to, you know, what the interests were. So whether it was gospel music or big band. So you have the time period and the type of music. Uh, and it does stay with people. And, and, and there's also something about rhythm and beats uh, that you're, you know, really help entertain uh, and draw in a person that has some sort of dementia. So, so do this for us, Judith, as you think about all this and, and all the work that you have done. For the <laughs> caregiver who is listening, who suddenly has been thrown into this situation, they have a mom or dad, brother, uncle, whomever, uh, who's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and that journey is just beginning. Uh, your book can be a real help to them. Um, yes. The, the difficulty, and I know this sounds awful, with a person that's newly, dif- newly diagnosed with dementia is they're functioning at today's level. So if you were to go give them activities, they're going to be really resentful of you because it's not appropriate for them at this point. So the book is really good for somebody who, who's starting to not be able to function that needs some structure. And it helps organize the family. So some of the information is perfect for someone to understand. Some of it is depressing for someone who's just been diagnosed to understand. And it, it and then it, it helps provide a framework. So what it is, is a tool. It's just one tool in the arsenal of what may or may not work for your parents. And the benefit of the book is that it gets you thinking about what you can do to care for your parent. And But if something causes frustration or something doesn't work, step back and don't do it. Because you're not there to frustrate the individual. You're there to help the individual, and hopefully this book will do just that. So does your book, do you use... Um you know, creative make make believe where where somebody can't necessarily remember something. They like making up something entirely new based on what they do remember. Um, I I don't believe it's making believe. My mother believed if my if my sis my sister and I sound alike, and if we called my mother, she knew who we were on the phone. She could distinguish. If she you. saw us. She wasn't sure who we were. I could have been an aunt. Oh. I could have been somebody else. My voice was recognizable to her, but the, the adult me didn't jive with the child me for my mother. So that wasn't make-believe for her. That was real for her. So I can't say to her, who am I, Mom, because that's going to frustrate her. And only she's not functioning at today's level. She's functioning at my 16 or my 12-year-old level. Mm. So... Whatever she says is right. And I think that's the hardest thing about dealing with someone with dementia is it's not make-believe, it's not make-up, it's very real to them. Their reality is different from what their reality used to be. And you can't, you, you just go with it. And whatever they say, it's true. And it's true to them. So you're not, it, it serves no purpose to frustrate somebody because it, it's not the kind of illness that you're going to, you know, prove them right or wrong. It's, it's kind of like, you're right, you're right. <laughs> I sound like that kid from before. So that's where we talk about going into their world rather than trying to drag them back into our world. It's okay. It's okay. It's, it's, it's not lying. It's you're, you're, you're helping provide uh, them a bridge to their own reality and, and, and it, I can't tell you how many times I have seen people play guessing games with someone with dementia. Do you know who I am? Not, you know, what day is it? What color is it? What? Uh? And, you know, peppering them with questions. And it would just, you know, it was like, oh, please stop doing that. And you could just see this the poor person with dementia getting crestfallen by well, not knowing because, any of the answers. Right. They don't know the answers because the answers don't exist yet. So, <clears throat> and it's difficult. It's really difficult as a child when your parent doesn't know who you are. I mean, there's, there's sometimes that I think that I won't forget it, and I won't forget that when, when my mother had no clue who I was, but she knew I was safe. And I think that's the biggest thing, is that you want to make them continue to be safe in your presence so that they're thrilled to see you. And it's, it's very gratifying. As you think about we got less than a minute and a half left. As you okay. think about where this is all going, we're going to end up at a point because there are so many 
baby boomers and others who don't have enough children to be their caregivers. It's true. So what happens? You really, if people are going into the field of caregiving, they have to be taught how to interact positively, and that's something that we have to address as a, as a, as a country. Because we have a lot of caregivers, but they aren't necessarily taught how to do activity with somebody. They're taught how to do ADLs, and there's more than ADLs in the, in the course of a day. Got to stop you right there. We're flat okay. out of time. Your book's available on Amazon. I figure this is a typo. It's only fourteen ninety nine. Actually, Amazon is selling it, I think, for 12 something. It's ah. not a typo. And it's, I want somebody and it's to on it. sale. <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> do you have a website? Any place else people want to find more information out about you? Um, I don't have a website. I'm, I'm just not that new. I, I um, can be reached at DementiaActivities at gmail.com. There's two A's stuck in the middle, DementiaActivities. Okay. DementiaActivities at gmail.com. Yes. And the book is on Amazon. And I'm on LinkedIn, and people have been writing me, and it's been very wonderful for me. I've really, it, it, cool. it's helped me deal with it. It's, you, it's you, been a wonderful thing. Judith Levy, thank you. Got to stop you right there. Appreciate you coming on Caregiver SOS On Air. We turn now to Take 10 with Carol Zerniel and Dr. Jamie Heisman coming up next right here on 930 AM, The Answer. All you have to do is look around and you see that folks are getting older. And when that happens, Dr. Robin Eikoff, what do they do for medical care? Well, you know, I'm glad you asked because at WellMed, we have a whole cadre of doctors who are specialized in just taking care of seniors. Is there a difference treating somebody who's 75, 80, 85 versus 20, 30, 40? Well, it's a little more challenging because obviously they've got a lot of more use on their body. But the concepts are the same. Eat right, exercise, and practice preventative medicine. And at WellMed, we do all of those things and we help you achieve that. And I understand you spend more time with your patients than a lot of other Medicare clinics. We do, and it's not time spent in the waiting room. It's time spent with the providers, it's time spent with the nurses, and it's time spent with the staff. You want to become a WellMed patient? It's easy. Just call 615-WELL, 210-615-WELL, to look for and hook up with a WellMed doc. Thank you so much for sticking with us for Take 10. At the end of each of our Caregiver SOS programs, we provide a dialogue between Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known expert on caregiving and addictions, and Carol Zerniel, our co-host here on Caregiver SOS On Air. And Carol, you came up with a pretty good topic. It's uh, the top 40 rules for caregiving from Dr. Jamie Heisman. Well, you know, Jamie, if, if you've heard Jamie before, know his top three rules are don't isolate don't isolate. And number three, don't isolate. So, Jamie, what, what's bad about isolation? What's the deal? Well, you know, isolation is, um, how do I say this? It's a self-engrossed phenomenon. How's that? You know, when we have mental illness or we're feeling depressed or even if you have an addiction, the world gets a lot smaller. And so we don't reach out. We don't connect. Most of the things we do are done in a vacuum of of, of isolation. And so we don't have this wonderful air conditioning of reflective ideas coming from people who maybe our friend, maybe our acquaintance, maybe like a teacher. Isolation to me is the cancer of the caregiver's soul. That's why I say the first three rules are isolate, don't isolate, don't isolate, don't isolate. And there's a lot of ways which we can explore, certainly on this program, but you do so well at Caregiver SOS, uh, Carol, as to ways to avoid isolation. So, you know, I number one, I do like that all three rules are the same because they're very easy to remember. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, but when we talk about, you talk about, I know summer's coming in there, the air conditioning. Um, you know, we had a recent guest that was saying that variety was really what made caregiving, helped prevent caregiver burnout. It was variety. Um, does that have something to do with isolation, shaking it up, making it a little different? Well, variety is wonderful, and I think you can find variety in places that actually serve to avoid isolation. I mean, let's take the support group. When you put eight people or ten people, <clears throat> excuse me, hopefully not much more than 15 because it may lose its effectiveness and become more of a academic setting, 
you're going to find variety all around the circle. As soon as you walk in, you're going to find people who were not friends that may become friends. They may be from a different culture, from a different experiential background. They are different age. They may have different sort of disease state that they're taking care of in their loved one. And, and so the beauty of, of variety is that we get so many points of view. But to do that, how is the first step to avoid isolation should be join a support group? Now, you had mentioned addictions is shrinking your world. Can you as a caregiver get addicted to the care recipient and that's where your focus, your energy, all your time goes? Well, Ron, you're dead on correct here. I mean, your myopic responses or how your world gets smaller is, is exactly what happens when a caregiver fixated on their loved one, on the care receiver's issues. I mean, they, it gets so small, and I'm sure Carol, who's a healthcare professional, could also understand this, that we have a difficult time at WellMed even getting caregivers to come in to get medical evaluation. For the themselves. So small. It's not even about their health any longer. Yeah. It's about their loved one. So, 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 um, so how do you break the cycle? Well, to break the cycle, it's, it's, it's a little deeper than, than we all think. And I wish there was just a one direction. And there really is one direction. I'm sure everybody who's listening to this is not going to like it. Go find a codependency anonymous meeting, period. Really? So, but that's a really big word, that codependency anonymous. What else might would they be calling it? <laughs> Well, you know, codependency, I, I say it's, it's being addicted, if you will, or being, let's say, having a compulsion to people, places, and things. And what Ron just asked is how do you avoid that, that myopia, that, that self-engrossed peace? You know, when we're dependent upon people, places, and things, uh, we're dependent upon them to reward our self-esteem or to grow us within. Our world becomes very much smaller because literally – we're relying on other people to, you know, tell us who we are. That's codependency. When we're balanced and we're healthy, and also, like you said, Carol, experiencing the variety of life, um, you don't have to be so externally dependent. You do feel the spiritual connection to self, and you can grow on your own. So I wonder why caregiving is different than, like, let's say, raising children, because I know plenty of parents who become totally engrossed with their kids uh, and they eat, live, and breathe for their children, taking them to classes and games and, you know, everything. Um, but they allow for those other kids' parents, and, you know, everything is, revolves around the kids, but they don't have that isolation. Why is it so different with caregivers and taking care of someone who may be older or a well, spouse? You know, I think that that's a great analogy. In my world, and, and I'm, of course, just like Ron, recent parents, curveballs in our life, I think when you raise a child or become a parent, I think what you're hoping against hope is that you're doing this to set them free, to let them go, to find a way in their lives to, to use the integrity and values you've taught them. But, you know, at some point in time, they have to fly on their own. Now, that's just the opposite often with the controlling nature, the possibility of a caregiver and a care receiver. Instead of allowing them to fly on their own, I mean, it's a chronic and terminal illness, possibly somebody's decompensating over time. And the controlling factor and even the self-engrossed factor, I think it's more and more intense. There is not this end goal of to let go, which is unfortunate. Well, well and part of that, I know we're going to talk about this next week. Part of that uh, goes against trying to encourage any independence and self-doing and self-thought on the part of the care recipient. You do it all for them. Absolutely. It's a smothering response. And, and but we do kind of smother or put, our, I say, our clinical spoon our, in our children's soup, and we do stay somewhat enmeshed. Um, it's really, really, you know, not the way we work with caregivers. It, to, 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 actually, to Ron's point, is it becomes a much more controlling sort of phenomena, a suffocating phenomena. And we actually do things that, you know, and I'm sure, like, a, like you said, Ron, next week I hear the title of the, is, is going to be like this. But we do things that they can do themselves, which unfortunately fosters no letting go. You've just joined us. You're listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS On Air. Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel, our co-hosts, I'm Ron Aaron and Carol. Well, um, so part of isolation comes from other people. It's not uh, in the part of the caregiver. There are a lot of people who are not comfortable with someone who is sick. Um, you know, your, the friends drop off because now that, you know, the spouse has Alzheimer's, they, the things they used to do together, they can't do. And so, My mother used to complain about that. So people all of a sudden, you know, they, they don't know what to do with you or you're just not the fun, loving 
couple or person that you used to be. So some of that is not on the part of the caregiver, right, Jamie? Right. Totally true. And that's why there are steps to avoid isolation, even taking into account that people may well drop off. And so I think a caregiver, there's a few things. Caregivers can utilize an online community, Carol. I mean, it's pretty cool to get on an online community and share common experiences and and connect with others, and that may be the first step in getting out. Or the caregiver teleconnection can be very helpful. Exactly. The caregiver teleconnection would be helpful, and I think that probably, you know, Carol is probably recreating this and finding out that maybe there will be an in-person social thing that could happen after you go through the academics but uh, of what you learn. But also now, if you want to avoid isolation, you can try for respite care. You can call places and get out and have a date, if you will. Um, you can set up get-togethers and bring friends and old friends, if you will, to come into your house and, and, and stay in touch. Um, another way to connect, I think, is also to write letters. It's so therapeutic. Um, if you actually write a letter and send it to somebody, that is a very strong, very strong connection. And ultimately, what can I tell you? It's always going to come back to, to this concept of you can also be a good friend to yourself and not isolate. You can also take long baths. You can go out for a movie if you like. You know, like you said, variety. You can write a journal, um, have coffee with a friend down the street. So there's many things you can do, even if your friends drop off. And, and yes, sometimes that is a natural phenomenon, Carol. What is it about that? I, my mother, I was saying, complained uh, long and hard about how some of their very best friends, once my dad uh, developed Alzheimer's and really spiraled all the way down, she never heard from anybody. She'd call them. They'd never call back. Isn't that amazing? It's, 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 an, uncomfort, it's an uncomfortable feeling. It's a shadow. It's, I would dare say somebody who does that probably can't embrace that exact experience, which will probably no doubt happen in their lives. You know, as Rosalind Carter says, if, if we're not a caregiver today, we'll be a caregiver tomorrow. But, Ron, it's extraordinarily telling. It is. It, it speaks to a fear and a shadow we've never embraced, that, that that which we find uncomfortable, we run from instead of approach, which, which is sad. Well, one of the other problems with isolation is that um, things become magnified or intensified. You were talking about that vacuum earlier. So when we're always in the dark, when we're always alone, when we're only dealing with illness, when we're only focusing on what's wrong and, and what we have to do, then we do get myopic. We do get, a, you know, a, a twisted view of the world and we just forget about everything else. Carol gets the last word today, Dr. Jamie. We are flat out of time, although I'll break into when you walk through a storm. This has been, you got it, Take 10. Part of Caregiver SOS on air right here on 930 AM. The answer for Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. We'll talk with you soon. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS on air on News Talk 930 KLUP. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.